Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. Um, today we are in a different setting than we normally are. Uh, typically Sean and I are at our homes and in separate locations, but we're going to start doing a once-a-month episode here at our church at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church in Warrington, Virginia. Um, we're currently uh, doing this from our book room. Um, ups the quality, I think, a little bit and... and uh, and it's just nice to, to do this in person. So I think we're going to start doing that from now on uh, once a month. So that's where you find us today. Um, but today we have a, a special guest with us, uh, Dr. Timothy Decker, coming to us from Southwest Virginia, um, not too far from where we're at. Um, is at a sister church. Is it the Trinity Reformed Baptist Church, brother? Yes. Okay, Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in Southwest Virginia. Um, but welcome, Dr. Decker. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Sure. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, before we get into our discussion today. Uh, where do you pastor? Uh, what is it that you teach and, and do? Well, uh, first and foremost, well, maybe not foremost, but uh, uh, I'm married to my wife coming up on 16 years in a couple of days. Um, I have a father of four wonderful children, and uh, the Lord has uh, been so gracious to allow me the privilege to pastor at Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in uh i say roanoke virginia technically it's uh has a different uh mailing address but it's easier just to say roanoke virginia <laughs> <laughs> and uh been there since uh 2018 and the lord has uh blessed and and, and been very good to us i'm very thankful for that uh in the in meantime i recently finished up a, a phd and so uh doors of opportunity have opened to teach um uh, there, there's a, a local school in in the Roanoke area called the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education. Uh, it's a, a broadly reformed uh, seminary setup. And uh, so those who hold to a uh, confession from the Reformation era or post-Reformation era are invited to, to teach. And as well as I uh, also have the opportunity to teach adjunctly with both uh, Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. I teach Greek one and two for them, which is how I met Sean. And uh, I also teach uh, adjunctly for IRBS Theological Seminary. I teach uh, New Testament uh, studies for them. Wow, so pretty big portfolio. Mm -hmm. uh. <laughs> and um, now, now our listeners know that if I ever make a Greek mistake, they know who to uh, blame. <laughs> there you go, there you go. He blame me, that's it. <laughs> Now, do you just teach Greek? Um, and when you say New Testament studies, is that does that include the languages, or is it more than that? Uh, it depends on the school. So, for uh, Covenant Baptist Seminary, I just teach Greek one and two for them currently. Um, for the for the local school here in Roanoke, for Bright, I teach all you know New Testament courses, whether it be Greek or you know the Gospels or whatever it uh, might be. And then for IRBS, they've asked me to teach Acts and Paul. I believe that'll be coming up in um, uh, 2022. Okay. All okay. right. Well, Sean, do you want to take us into our topic today? Yeah. So today we'll um, be going through, um, well, we'll be discussing the style of the Bible. Um, our confession says in uh, uh, chapter one, paragraph five, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter the efficacy of the doctrine and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. 
the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So as our confession says, one of the attributes of the scriptures is the majesty of the style. Um, the Bible is not a haphazard book. It has many types of literature in it, and we can glean important um, truths from just the type of literature and the style that's in it. So that's really what we're going to be uh, discussing here today. Yeah, um, and I guess diving right into our, our questions on the on the heel of that, um, we recently did a podcast episode where we looked at uh, primarily two different translations and criticizing the Passion Translation and the Message Bible. Um, and in looking at, you know, the Message Bible in particular with Eugene Peterson, uh, he talks about the New Testament language as being street language. Um, what would you say uh, to that assessment of the Greek literature or just the Greek language in general, especially as it relates to the New Testament? Sure. Actually, I, I listened to that episode. I rather enjoyed that oh, episode. <laughs> so you're, you're familiar with the background. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's how you frame the question because in some sense he's right. In other sense, it's how you apply that. So mm. uh, the Greek of the New Testament was common. It was the common trade language of the day. Um, but that doesn't mean that it was um, insufficient to uh, to be used in such a way that would make it more lofty. Uh, it doesn't mean it's insufficient for literary artistry. Uh, you could say the same thing for Hebrew, even though Hebrew was a very common uh, tongue uh, in, in, in the various Semitic languages around them, it could still be used in a very high and lofty way. We could say the same thing about English. Just because we're speaking very common English doesn't mean we can't use our English in a very poetic uh, or uh, masterful way to communicate uh, grand ideas. That's what good literature does. It takes what is common and and raises it up. It elevates it. So uh, he he is right in one sense to say that it is the language of the street, but uh, that doesn't mean that it can't be used to communicate either poetry or uh, high lofty style. The 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 red the rhetorical abilities of the authors coming out in their text. Uh, it's very apparent that they they knew how to elevate the style of, of, of the language. And uh, as our confession holds, that's actually a uh, an evidence that the, the word of God is indeed from the divine author himself. Hmm. Now, I know that you did your uh, doctoral dissertation on New Testament poetry. What got you interested into uh, biblical poetry? Well, just, just to nuance that, it wasn't just on New Testament poetry. It was um, really the style of Old Testament Hebrew poetry that you see appear in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So there's actually various kinds of poetry in the New Testament, but I, I mainly focused on the kind of poetry that would be akin to what you'd see in the Old Testament. Um, and what got me into that was I've always enjoyed poetry, even growing up. Um, I remember, you know, having to memorize uh, monologues from Shakespeare. Uh, I used to be a a singer songwriter, though I don't think any of my my own poems were all that uh, you know worth uh, talking about. But I've always had a flair for poetry, and then I've had influences throughout my my past who have kind of directed me there. Uh, one one of the major influences to read scripture through the lens of its literary element was David Allen Black. 
uh, he was my uh, THM mentor at Southeastern Seminary. And uh, he, he wrote just a, a profound article called The Literary Artistry in the Epistle of Hebrews. And just walking through how it's not just, uh, in fact, he's probably going to argue that it's going to be a very sermonic and uh, showing just that the, the rhetorical uh, ability of the author there to communicate the, 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 the message. And it made me realize that scripture isn't just a doctrinal document. It's actually literature. I mean, the, the word scripture itself means writing, graphe, it means writing. And so we should expect that uh, there's going to be a literary element to it. Um, and, and if you know anything about David Allen Black, he um, was one of the uh, main uh, uh, impetuses behind the ISV, International Standard Version. And if you look at how they deal with New Testament poetry, uh, they do their very best to try to uh, contextualize how we would hear poetry in the New Testament. It's actually very, uh, uh, very, uh, I would say, clever in that how we're going to understand something to be poetic, though it might be different from uh, Old Testament or New Testament style. They try to bring that out and demonstrate the poetic elements of certain portions of the text. So he was uh, very influential in helping me realize that there is a a large amount of poetry, even in the New Testament. And um, then realizing that Hebrew poetry is its own beast. It's, it's, a, it's, a, lar it's a very large world. Um, uh, Mark Meyer at Capital Seminary, uh, he pretty much exposed me to uh, a large part of what biblical Hebrew poetry looks like. And then as I'm studying this and realizing that it appears in the New Testament, and yet most New Testament scholars aren't understanding it, uh, I would say, accurately, um, that's when I realized there's a big gap in the literature. So it, it, it really got me uh, looking into how since even the last 40 years, there's been a, a huge advance in our understanding of biblical Hebrew poetry. And so seeing that not work out in, in the field of New Testament scholarship, it kind of uh, threw a door open for me to do some research. And it almost seemed, you know, going tying that into what Eugene Peterson said, um, it almost seems like with, uh, you know, you're talking about poetry is kind of bringing out this majesty in the, in the New Testament. It seems that um, he's creating this dichotomy, you know, it's street language, therefore it's not really, um, you know, it's not really as viable or as helpful as it could be. Um, yet we find that this style of poetry in the Bible really does, I think, bring out the great literary um, works that are there that are inspired, but um, that show that the language can be used in a way that communicates uh, biblical truth very clearly and effectively. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, you, you can look at even modern uh, poetry in English. You, you might even look at uh, a medium like rap uh, using a very, you know, uh, colloquial street level kind of language, but uh, to, to make some of the rhymes and, and the, the movements that they do requires uh, artistry of some kind, however you feel about it. But the point being that even if it were street level, doesn't mean that you can't use that to elevate uh, the literary style of some, of something. Yeah. And even the way that the, uh, the new Testament Christians or the early Christians, you know, would preserve texts and put them into the codex and, and the way that they would pass them along and, and copy them. Um, I think shows that it's not just merely street language, but that they saw this as, as truly beautiful. Um, it's the words of God, but it's also written in a way that uh, is very, you know, comes out very well. 
And, and that's actually a really excellent point because it demonstrates that they had a keen awareness of the style of Old Testament poetry, which is why they'd be so familiar to bring it in to the New Testament. I, I, I can't tell you how many New Testament critical scholars I've come across that said that the New Testament authors themselves did not understand Old Testament poetry. It just boggles my mind, the arrogance of, of some who can, you know, 2000 years removed from the New Testament period can say we have a better understanding than they did, but they're the ones, as you said, that were copying these documents and so familiar with the style. And uh, so being very humble when you come across a subject like this is, is critical, I believe. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, how does understanding poetry help us understand scripture better? That's a very important question. And it, the cop-out answer would say, depending on the passage, it's going to vary. It's going to depend much in every way or maybe not so much. Um, but if we were to think of this in terms of literature itself, uh, so much of, of the meaning of a text is embedded in the form it takes. Um, there, there's a saying that might be that the, the, the medium is the message. Um, that, that's um, a trope that was uh, wielded out in the 20th century. And I think there's some truth to that. So uh, if, if we consider scripture uh, being delivered in a certain type of vehicle, whether it be a certain type of genre or, or whatever, if it's um, a certain type of literary trope that it's following, if that's the vehicle that God has chosen to reveal himself, the better we know that form or that vehicle, the better we're going to understand the meaning. And sometimes uh, when we, especially when we think of like biblical Hebrew poetry, we understand it very intuitively. That's the, the beauty of uh, much of Hebrew poetry, that we don't have to have it all explained to figure it out. So I'll give an example. Uh, when we come across in 1 Samuel, the short little ditty uh, that Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands, that is actually Hebrew poetry. And we don't have to have someone explain you know, this concept of parallelism and A, what is more B and the intensification in the second line, we can just hear that and know that whatever is said of Saul, what, what is said about David is going one further. And you don't have to have uh, a scholar explain that. And that's the beauty uh, of this. And But the more you delve into that and you see it in other places where seeing that intensification come out can be very helpful. So for example, say something like Psalm 1-1, which is, I think, a very helpful way to illustrate um, uh, 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 understanding Hebrew poetry and how it will help you understand scripture better. Um, Blessed is the man who does not, uh, and go through three phrases that you have. He doesn't walk uh, in the way, he doesn't stand, and he doesn't sit. You see an intensification there, or, or even a slowing of the movement, and even the, even the language. He doesn't you know, go in the way or walk in the way of of sinners and then uh, sit in, uh, or uh, stand in the way of, of the wicked and sit in the seat of the scoffers. And so you see an intensification there and you're to feel that intensification, that, that it's growing and building even in the very opening of our Psalter. And that's what, that's what Hebrew poetry does. And understanding that gives us a better sense of scripture itself. And so that's just, it's a long answer to get at your, your uh, question there, that it does help us understand the text better as we, understand the vehicle in which the text is coming at us. No, that's a, that's a very uh, important point, especially with Psalm 1. I know at some point somebody brought up that there's an intensification going on there. It may have even been you in a class. I don't remember now. 
but uh, I had never noticed that before, but it's, it's absolutely true that it's going through and making sure that, you know, like, no, every, every single part of this, you should not be doing. Right. And I think we tend to breeze over things like that because we're so used to, I think in our English language, not understanding the historical context that might lead to that uh, type of literature. We tend to just read it, move on and, and not see the, the important meaning behind that. And I think you can see that too, um, maybe even in the Proverbs with some of the parallelisms with how things are compared um, that are helpful to bring out a point. But I think that would point to different types of Hebrew poetry. Sure, sure. All right. Um, so, you know, we, we've talked about the Old Testament and how, you know, I think most people associate poetry with the Old Testament, uh, especially in the Psalms. But what are some of the poetic devices that the New Testament authors use? Well, I'm going to have to still go back to the Old Testament because uh, what the New Testament authors will mostly draw from, uh, I, I'm a maximalist in, in that I think that they primarily, if not exclusively, draw from the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. and, and so uh, to really to get at understanding what the New Testament authors were doing with their poetry, and, and I would qualify that if indeed they are trying to use Hebrew poetry, um, I don't think they always do that, but primarily when they do that, and I can give you a couple examples as we go along, but you do need to understand how uh, biblical Hebrew poetry works. And I already alluded to one example of the parallelism and how they'll say something in line A and something else in line B. Now, here's the big mistake that people will say, and, and this is where I hear uh, people misunderstand what Hebrew poetry is. It's not saying the same thing twice. And I'll give you an example of this. If it were saying the same thing twice, then numerical intensification in, in the uh, Proverbs or the Psalms wouldn't make sense. So, you know, six things God hates. Do we say that the next line is half a dozen things he abhors? No, we understand there's an intensification. Seven things are an abomination. That's the concept of Hebrew poetry. It's line A and then what is further, what is more, line B. And then, because poetry uh, is really all about the economy of words, there is what we would call a terseness, uh, saying as, as much as you can with as few words as possible. So uh, Hebrew poetry, and you'll see this in, in the New Testament as well, they will omit words, as many words as they, they can. Um, they will leave out you know, words that we understood as implied, the word like is or are, things like that. They will leave those out. And that's really what's driving this style of Old Testament biblical Hebrew poetry. And there's also a part of the uh, grammar and the parallelism between line A and line B that we really do miss in, in the Hebrew and, and in the Greek where they either make their uh, lines very symmetrical or they'll, they'll contrast the grammar. They might, in line A, it might be um, masculine object and then line B will be a feminine object or something to that effect or line A, it'll be a prefix verb and line B, it'll be a suffix verb and things like that. So they, they do that contrast. And then you see that happen in the, in the new Testament as well, where they have this kind of grammatical contrast between line A and line B and, and even line C, if it's a, a, a tricolon rather than just a, a bicolon. And so you see that come out in the new Testament as well in certain places. And, and, and you see the new Testament using those same devices and using them to make the same kind of emphases so if you go to places like the Magnificat, you see where they're borrowing from or even advocating and using uh, Old Testament biblical Hebrew poetry style 
but it's being brought over into Greek as, as Luke is recording this, he's bringing it out in the, in, in the Greek, but he's still using the same style and the same devices that you would expect from the old Testament. And so it's, it's actually very elegant in, in how the new Testament authors are, are able to do this. And so we see a lot of the same styles and a lot of the same devices at work that you saw in the old Testament. It would be natural to see the, the new Testament authors who are familiar with, uh, you know, the, the Hebrew Bible and, and the, even the Greek Old Testament, they're very familiar with how this would work, even in another language like Greek. So it's, it's actually very intriguing. So in, in going back to the topic of intensification, would you say when, uh, like in Isaiah 6, when we see holy, 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 is that repetition a form of intensification or is that just emphasizing a point? Um, that that would not necessarily be the kind of intensification that I would be talking about. Uh, the, the intensification would come about in the next line. Uh, and, and it doesn't always have to be intensification. J just to clarify, the concept could be to uh, be more precise, greater precision. It could be uh, the entire poem could be one of entire intensification. Um, you kind of see that in Romans 3 when Paul borrows from so many different passages in the Psalms and Romans three, he, he actually concocts his own Hebrew poetry and it, and it's, it follows a very uh, standard pattern of poetry, but he's drawing a line here and a drawing a line there and he's putting it all together and it builds line after line. It's building up. He starts with, you know, the, the back of the throat and it coming out to the mouth and it reaches all, all the physical elements of his, of his body referring to uh, the matter of sin. And so you see this entire, a form of intensification, but it could just be completion that you say something in line A, like holy, 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 and then line B completes the thought, gives it its fullest meaning. Um, and that's kind of what I would might see in Isaiah 6 with something like that. It's interesting that uh, you bring up uh, Romans 3 as a, an example of poetry. Um, for a lot of the, I think maybe all the Septuagints we have today, um, whoever was copying them, actually, it appears they put uh, part of Romans 3 into Psalm 14, that, that section there. So clearly, they felt that it uh, resembled enough like the Psalms that they could put that in there. there there's actually a few Hebrew, um, uh, medieval Hebrew uh, manuscripts that have oh, really? a copy of Psalm 14 that are uh, a copy of Romans 3. I don't take that to mean that uh, Paul was drawing on something from the Old Testament. I think he really was demonstrating his ability as a human author being guided under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, to demonstrate his prowess as a, uh, as a, as a poet himself. And Paul was certainly uh, one who was not unfamiliar with Hebrew literature, being a Pharisee, <laughs> absolutely being, being a Jewish leader. He knew the law very well and, and made very clear he was well above his peers in knowing the scriptures. So yeah, it makes absolutely. sense to pull from that. So do you have a favorite poetic passage, either Old or New Testament? Well, I, I'll give you a little bit of both. Um, I think the, the passage that launched me into this entire world, if you will, was the Lord's Prayer. Many will, will agree that the Lord's Prayer is very poetic. Uh, if you read it in the Greek, it becomes very apparent. And of course, I don't even have my Greek New Testament with me. Shame on me. Um, I, guess, I guess I could pull it up on my phone and read it, but... Uh, if you if you read it, you can even hear the, the rhythmic pattern. You can hear the rhyming that's going on, which aren't necessarily elements of Hebrew poetry. But you can even hear it, hear the paralleling that's happening in the uh, in the opening line. Anyhow, 
with uh, our Father in, uh, who is in heaven. You know, line A, hallowed be your name. Line B, your kingdom come. Line C, your will be done. What, what is amazing to me is how, uh, whether it be uh, old uh, Reformation authors, scholars, even like Calvin himself, as he's commenting on these things, he didn't, I, I wouldn't say he understood the Hebrew parallelism behind it, but he understood that there was an intensification of some kind, a, a distinguishing of some kind. Then you come to modern day commentaries and they hear that as Hebrew poetry. And that just means, uh, uh, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done, all mean the same thing. But that's not what's going on. Look at old catechisms, old uh, confessions that refer to the Lord's, Lord's Prayer. They make a distinction and because that's what Hebrew poetry would do. And what I came to believe is that if this is styled after Hebrew poetry, which our Lord would absolutely know, being the author of it himself, um, you, you do see an intensification of the most general thought of the uh, mission of man is to sanctify or to set apart God's name. Um, that would be the opening of the prayer. And then more specific than that uh, is your kingdom come. Now, of the ways that God's name can be set apart, there are numerous ways. But of one of those ways would be that God's reign would come. And then how does God's reign come? Well, there's many elements to that. Uh, the Lord returns and he and he brings with him uh, his wrath and and justice along with him. But it also uh, is more narrowly defined as uh, your will being done. And so I think it would be incorrect to say that all three of these phrases are saying the same thing in different words. It's a, a narrowing and intensification or uh, being more precise in what is being after. So then you switch it from this eschatological future looking uh, to now the present day uh, when you get to the second half of the Lord's Prayer and you see still the, the same kind of parallelism going on, you know, give us this day, which is our daily bread. And he keeps on going with the, with the parallelism. And it's just a beautiful example of how the style of Hebrew poetry uh, is brought out in the New Testament. So I, I was really enamored by the Lord's Prayer in terms of Hebrew poetry in the New Testament. But then just talking about one of my favorite uh, poems in the Old Testament itself would be Psalm 2. Um, Psalm 2 for me, is just the quintessential of what it looks like for Hebrew poetry and literary artistry. I'm, I'm hoping to publish an article on the majesty of the poetic style of Psalm 2 coming up. We'll see if that gets approved and published, but uh, just a, an elegant and very beautiful way. And, and, and what more important Psalm would you need than to really draw our ears, our eyes, our focus than Psalm 2 about the the, the son of God who is uh, ruling over the nations and has been declared by God to uh, be the son. It's just, it's so important that we would be drawn into that psalm through these poetic devices. And so that's a good example of how we would see the, the poetry affecting the audience, the reader, the listener, the, 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 the congregation who is enjoying the literature itself. And it, yeah, I think it, also shows the importance of understanding the original languages as well. I think we miss that while translation is helpful, it, it, going back to, there's nothing like studying the original languages, I don't think. It is true. I, I, I do try to qualify that though, because I know some people don't have the, the time or the ability. And I, I don't want to tell you that, you know, you're unable to appreciate it. In fact, I think, again, the, the beauty of this kind of Hebrew poetry is that you can intuitively understand what is happening 
without having to learn all the nuances of the language. And that's the, mm -hmm. the beauty of, of, the, of the vulgar tongue of, of, of our translations today, that you can still hear the literary beauty. And one of the nice things about translations, they'll set it off into kind of block format so you know that this is poetic. Not a poetry that we might be familiar with. We wouldn't see the rhyming going on, but you can still hear it and you can understand in some sense intuitively the the precision or the intensification or the completion going on. And so, uh, yes, to, to have the original languages is definitely a benefit. But uh, for, for those audiences, audience members listening that, you know, you don't have access to Greek or Hebrew, fear not, because the, the beauty that God has made in his word is that it can be experienced in uh, the original language and in the common tongue from which it's translated. Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a really important point. Um, so what are some other literary devices that are frequently employed in the Bible that um, students of the Bible should be aware of? Oh, that's, a, that's a fun question. Mm -hmm. um, probably uh, the three that come to my mind, and Sean, you might remember me talking about some of these things, uh, would be uh, wordplay or, or pun that, punning that happens, especially in the, in the uh, Old Testament, in the Hebrew. Uh, I, I've joked around that um, I tell people, even though I teach Greek, that you really need to learn Hebrew because it's language of dad jokes. It just puns and and, and plays with itself or with other similar languages. Uh, it's not not an accident that the Hebrew word for evil, Ra, is the same name as the sun god of Egypt, Ra. So they, they just have fun, you know, poking fun at some of the other cultures around them. Um, that's a lot of fun. But you see this in the New Testament as well. Um, some wordplay or pun. Uh, a good example of this is uh, Romans 2.17, where Paul is kind of getting to a place in chapter 2 of Romans where he is really making it clear that he's bringing an indictment towards the Jews. And in verse 17, he'll use a word player, a pun, uh, with the two verbs there uh, when he says that if you call yourself a Jew and rely uh, on the law, well, those two words in, in Greek are almost identical, though, uh, Paul uses uh, in one word a, a double compound to help it make it be identical. Uh, in, in the Greek, it's "eponamadze uh, kai eponapaue," and it just it rolls off the tongue so so nicely. And, uh, and this is the point where he's ready to wag his finger at the Jews who were wagging their fingers at the Gentiles from chapter one. And so he's going to use this word play, this this pun, if you will to uh, really draw in the, the audience. And so you see that throughout the scriptures, not just the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament. And so I think it's helpful to be aware of those kind of advice, uh, those kind of devices. Uh, you see it, uh, the very opening of the uh, Hebrew Bible is a, is a word play, uh, you hear that bara, bara sound where it just draws you right into, in the beginning, God created. Um, Adam is created out of the Adamah, and Noah in, in Genesis 9 is said to also be from a man of the dirt, also from the Adamah. And so Noah is being represented as another, another Adam, and Adam is being represented as a man of dirt. And so you just have all this fun wordplay going on and, and punning in both New Testament and Old Testament. Another device that I think is really important it, that most people are aware of, though how it works out is not always understood, is chiasmus, chiasmus, or chiasm, chiasm, has so many different ways it's pronounced. But it's basically the idea that it is something like ABC, CBA. And this could be large chunks of scripture, or it could just be six words, uh, kind of like Genesis 9, 6. 
Genesis 9, 6 is where we get the idea of capital punishment. And it's done in such a way where it is uh, in a a chiastic pattern of ABC, CBA. And you can even hear it, at least I didn't didn't look at other translations, but it becomes uh, apparent in some translations like the ESV. I'll read it. It says, whoever sheds, there's the first word in, in the Hebrew, so that's A. Whoever sheds the blood, B, of man, C, by man, C, shall his blood be be shed, A. And so it goes A, B, C, C, B, A. And that's important because this is the idea of proper justice and retribution. And how else, or what's another way that you can demonstrate that? Well, you would use this kind of concentric and then oppositing of A, B, C, C, B, A. It's just one of those nice ways that the text can use its own vehicle to communicate the the idea of proper justice that God has ordained uh, the civil magistrate. And the last one I think is really important would be the uh, literary device known as an inclusio. You might think of it as a bookend where something has the same beginning and the same ending as a means either to let the audience subconsciously know that where we begin, where we end, we've reached the, the, the boundary markers. And it can even demonstrate a, a major theme. So, for example, in Romans, Romans opens in chapter one with this this phrase, the obedience of faith. And then you get to chapter 16, I believe in verse 25. It also uses verbatim the phrase, the obedience of of faith, both in terms of of Gentiles, of the nations. And so this becomes an important theme that you'll see woven in throughout Romans about the obedience to the gospel. Another phrase that you'll see in in Romans as well. So sometimes these these devices of bookending will either set the literary boundaries, but they'll also indicate to the audience uh, one of the themes that you need to be aware of. And uh, so as you read and then reread, you're more uh, either even now consciously aware of those literary elements, those thematic elements, because they didn't have boldface font, they didn't have underlining. And so they would come up with other means to demonstrate to the audience what they're emphasizing. And so I would say th- those three are my favorite, punning, uh, chiasmus and inclusios. It's interesting with, uh, going back to point number two of chiasmus, that it's like they're emphasizing the point that Jesus makes in the New Testament or even in the old covenant with, uh, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. It's like your blood is shed. So your blood is going to be, re- or you shed someone else's blood. Your blood is going to be required of you. Yes. And there is actually a chiasmus happening there as well. Um, mm-hmm. I believe. And, uh, I, f- I forget which either Exodus or Leviticus, uh, that mentions that there's a chiastic pattern there as well. So I think we've touched upon this a little bit already, but how has the study of the majesty of style deepened your appreciation for God's word? Well, as you read the confession, it reminded me again why this is so important, because this is one of the ways that God has given scripture a self-authentication. You don't see this throughout any other kind of literature, not to say that other literature doesn't have elevated style, But to see scripture that has so many different authors and yet all throughout every one of these authors have elevated style, it really demonstrates that behind it, behind all the human authors and the literary geniuses that they were, there's a divine author. And and I think that 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 is very profound as we read scripture, we're we're reading the 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 mind of God and we're hearing that God is is not so boring, but uh, he is the creator of beauty, beauty being the standard of beauty. His beauty is infinite, uh, the Psalms tell us. And so uh, this is, again, the vehicle that God chose to reveal himself to the world. And so if he chose to use literature, 
I think we need to understand that vehicle as best as possible. But that also means, and I think this has really helped me in my own personal uh, time uh, as I do private devotions, private worship. It means that I need to enjoy the vehicle. The, the, the phrase in our confession, the majesty of the style of scripture, it doesn't just demonstrate our divine author. It also points to the pleasure that it is to read the words of our divine author and, and, and to read scripture and knowing that scripture was meant to be enjoyed. Scripture was meant to be read, not as a task, not as a uh, only a spiritual discipline. It was meant to be enjoyed. And it's only within the last, you know, 300 or so years and maybe even less that we've had our own copy where we can enjoy this. It used to be that to enjoy scripture, you did it with uh, within the congregation, within your local covenant community. And, and to hear scripture with, um, you know, a, a neighbor or a friend or a church member, uh, to, to have scripture read to you together, which is why it's so important in the uh, local gathering of the church that we hear scripture read. We are devoted to the reading of scripture because we're enjoying scripture together and we're hearing and experiencing these literary uh, themes and the, the majesty of the style coming out. It, it, it makes scripture reading a more pleasurable experience and something that I think we've lost because we've made it a, a demand We've made it a duty, and, and it's very much meant to be a delight. There, there are so many places in the in the Bible I can think of that it's it's either poking fun, jabbing, uh, or just meant to be comical. And we might miss that in the English, but uh, the the idea behind it was that we're supposed to enjoy this. So, for example, uh, one of my favorite stories is the story of Ehud in the Book of Judges and how he kills. Eglon and Ehud is a is a Benjamite, and the word Benjamin means son of the right hand, and yet he is right hand bound or left handed, and and then he kills Eglon, and his name sounds like a fatted calf in Hebrew, and just so many fun things. And by the time you get to the end of the story, you're thinking this is just comical how God has brought deliverance to the people, and yet at the end of it, you have Ehud saying to the people of God, "Follow me." And so we're drawn into the literary beauty. And then we come across this gospel statement that Jesus will say it himself, follow me. And so the majesty, the style just brings us to this place where we're enthralled to hear what's going to happen next. And then the presentation of the gospel uh, is brought to bear. And I think that's that's one of the beauties of the majesty, the style that it communicates the gospel in a way that's not mundane, but um, it, it presents our God as uh, the majestic Lord of the universe that he indeed is. Yeah, and it should, like you said, it should lead us to wanting to read the word more publicly and emphasizing, you know, when we have our call to worship, uh, when we get up for worship, it, it should make us eager to hear God's word. Absolutely. What is, what is God going to bring us today? Yes, amen. All right. Um, is there any other topic related to this that you wanted to cover that we hadn't gone through? Oh, there's probably so many, but I don't want to prolong this too too much, I suppose. But uh, I could I could talk about this kind of thing for for hours. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, maybe we'll have you on again for uh, another discussion related to this. All right. Um, before we leave, is there anything we can pray for you or for your church? Uh, well, you know, uh, praise God, we've had some recent baptisms, and I would pray that you know the waters in our baptismal would continue to stir as you know we pray for. Uh, our sister church in Warrington. Uh, personally, for me, I, I have a lot of projects on my plate uh, trying to, you know, publish uh, dissertation or 
uh, write other things and presentations all the while being a, um, a pastor. Thankfully, uh, I, I'm a co-pastor. I don't labor alone. So that's uh, a blessing. But I, I am very uh, overwhelmed at the moment with uh, a big teaching schedule as long as well as preaching and writing projects. So I would really appreciate prayers for uh, my workload. Absolutely, Absolutely, brother. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Decker, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and uh, this discussion. Um, and Lord willing, everybody will be back next week. We'll be back in our normal venue. Sean and I will be separate again. But um, again, we'll be continuing in this posture once a month uh, going forward. But again, Dr. Decker, thank you for joining us today. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. You're welcome. And with that, everyone, have a great weekend and Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.